What's up, everybody? Welcome to another week of the Bible Boys. My name is James. And I'm Pip, and it's a Monday afternoon. Mm. Nice and sunny here at Moore College. Spring in... is in the air. Spring has sprung. <laughs> I went out for a... Uh... You, you know, I have mentioned this a couple of times. Not really. I don't really like to talk about it. But um, Instant coffee, Call of Duty, uh, marketing, uh, app ideas. No, no, no. Bible no. Boys Instagram. No, no, no. Uh, running. Oh, running. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, do you know that I run from time <laughs> no. to time? <laughs> I choose not to run. Okay. But, uh, there you go. I went for a beautiful run. A beautiful morning. run. Beautiful. Okay. Beautiful. It was, it was reviving to the soul. Right. Like the like the the Lord to the psalmist, yes, <laughs> kind of. Anyway, I ran Parramatta River, beautiful in the morning, you know, sunny day, and and the that faint smell of smoke. Oh, in the yes, air? there was. There's some back burning that was going yes. on in Asheville. I love you know. You love it. I, I I'm a bit worried about fires around, but it's like that little smell of smoke. I love it. Oh, you know? there you go. Yeah, it was quite strong um, in Newtown last night. Um, you know, Viv and I were watching some TV, and then oh, someone's really burning their fireplace. You know, mm. burning the firewood in their fireplace. I know it's a bit chilly. I didn't know it was that chilly tonight. Mm. We're going to Henry's room. It's just filled with that smoke, and so we Henry's went, been smoking again. Yeah, that's right. Henry's been smoking again. <laughs> that's right. Oh, Henry, uh, we've told you wait until at least two. Mm, <laughs> yeah, otherwise, you'll stunt your growth. Yeah, that's it. That's right. Um, but yeah, no, there was there's quite a strong smell, and you could smell it up in Parramatta. Yeah, as yeah, well. yeah. And it's uh, it's it's a sign of spring, isn't it? The smoke. Is it the back burning? The, yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. I uh, no, it. you're right. You are right. You are right. Um, now, last week, you and I both had essays that were due. I want to hear about your essay and your. How, how did that experience go for you? Yeah, it was. It was, it was all right, I think. Um, so I was writing on Isaiah mm-hmm. and thinking about the theme of creation. Creation in, in, Isaiah. in Isaiah. Right. And then linking it to doctrine. And thinking, how does Isaiah's creation theme contribute to a Christian understanding of eschatology? Oof. Yes. The last things. Yes. And um, it's interesting because, like, you know, Isaiah, in the end of, uh, end of Isaiah, God promises to create a new heavens and a new earth. Mm. And so what what we look forward to is an act of creation. Mm, mm. Um, as Christians, we look forward to an act of creation, a new heavens and a new earth. Um, what is the new heavens? What is the new earth? Well, heavens and earth, sky and land, it's everything. Like a, God is going to renew the cosmos mm. um, for his people. And that comes through at the, the very last line of Isaiah. Often, often prophets end on a high note. Isaiah doesn't end on a high note. Mm. The last verse of Isaiah has this pretty grotesque imagery. Um, chapter 66, verse, I think it's 24, um, talks about the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against God. Um, they'll be looked upon. Um, and it has this line where it says, their worm will not be satisfied and their fire will not be quenched. And um, it's a pretty grotesque imagery of the judgment to come for those who rebel against God. Interestingly, in the New Testament, Jesus chooses that Isaiah line to describe hell. Uh, in one of his statements about hell, 
he, he, he includes that as I quote. Mm. So he might um, recognize that line when Jesus says, um, talks about hell where their bodies, where the, their worm will not die, uh, the worm will not be satisfied and their fire will not be quenched. The idea of the, um, the permanence, the kind of foreverness of yes. that. Um, that judgment. Yeah. And so, yeah, it got me thinking a lot about Isaiah. I, I wouldn't say that I, f- uh, I don't, f- I, I can confidently say that I don't fully understand Isaiah, um, but I think I've, I understand it a lot better than I did mm. a month ago having nice. done this essay. So that's a win. Um, and I think I understand a bit more of how the New Testament uses Isaiah in developing the idea of the future. Hmm. Um, using that Isaiah creation imagery and some of that judgment imagery as well. Um, what about you? What were you working on in... No, you had already done all the things that you needed to do before <laughs> Research Week. Is that right? What, the what thing did you that, do last week? Well, the thing that was due at the end of Research Week, Doctrine Essay, yep. I had finished that a few weeks ago. So I worked on a 1 Samuel exegetical nice. paper on chapter 24. Okay. And um, I think... You know, we're on a bit of a limited time schedule today. We probably can't do a full hour like mm. we usually have been doing. But um, let me just say briefly that one of the things that isn't super important to a discussion about chapter 24, but that some people think a lot about is, why does 1 Samuel 24 seem so similar to 1 Samuel 26 mm. in terms of the events that are going on there? Okay. And so, uh, you know, different authors, uh, uh, sorry, different scholars have different opinions on this. A big one is that, well, 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26 are really just describing the same event, but 1 Samuel 24 is, uh, it was a later addition mm-hmm. to the narrative. What happens in 1 Samuel 24? Yeah, so in 1 Samuel 24, Saul is looking for David. David is on the run. Saul gets wind of David being somewhere, yeah. and he goes looking for David. While he's looking for David, he needs to relieve himself. Now, right. we don't know if this is, you know a number one or a number two or something or, else, or something else. Yeah. but he goes into a cave to relieve himself. And while he's there, turns out David and his men are there yes. and his men say to David, oh, you could take him out now. Mm. And Saul doesn't even recognize or realize David comes by. David cuts a bit of his robe off, uh, but spares Saul's life and then lets Saul go. And mm. then David reveals himself explains his blamelessness, how he hasn't actually harmed the, the king's life, and then Saul repents and says, I'm so sorry, I recognize mm. God's favor in your life. Now, that happens in 1 Samuel 24. It also seems to happen in 1 Samuel 26. What's the deal with these two stories? Why put them so close together? What is the deal? What is the deal? Well, one of the things I just wanted to say, which might be really helpful for our listeners, is that there is a deal. <laughs> in, there is a deal. Uh, there is a deal. Um, 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26 the key to understanding what's going on there, get this, is 1 Samuel 25. Oh, it's like a sandwich. <laughs> it's like a sandwich. You look at the slices of bread, you're like, what, what is this? What is this? You need to figure you out. We've got bacon, lettuce, tomato in yeah. there, you know, or what are we talking about? Okay. Ham and cheese toasty. So what's in chapter, chapter 25? Well, in chapter 25, there's a particular individual named, oh, is it Nabal or Nadal? Anyway, it's Nabal, I think. And he Not ha- Naboth? Oh, Naboth, maybe? I'm not sure. Maybe it's Naboth. I'm all of a sudden, Nadal? off the top of my head, I can't... Is it Nadal? <laughs> Nadal? Is it Rafael Nadal? <laughs> it's not Rafael Does Nadal. Does he play tennis? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, quick side note. Um, Nadal, oh, 
Rafa, sorry, Rafa yeah. in Hebrew means what? Heal. To heal. And the way But I... there's also something else that it means. Oh, what else? I don't know. I think it's like, <laughs> um, there's like a really similar word that means to, oh, what is it? What is it? Oh. It's like to. We're testing Pip's third year Hebrew oh. knowledge here. Heal. What's. No, it's like to, to, bring, to bring low, to fail or something. To. To humiliate or fail or something. Are you thinking yarad, which is to go down or descend? Are you thinking about... Okay. Maybe. Let's anyway, move on. Heal, heal, heal. The, the way I heel. remember it is that Nadal always had a lot of injuries. That's how needed... I remember it! Hey! That's how I remember That's it! That's how you remember it. Yeah. Rafa, you know, yeah. Rafa Nadal needed to heal all the time from his injuries. Rafa to heal. Yeah. There you go. Oh. Anyway. Where was I? So 1 Samuel 25, I've just checked. It's Nadal. Uh, <laughs> it's not Nadal. It's Nabal. 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 Not Nadal. Um, anyway, so he has a particular individual. David seeks to, uh, you know, find a blessing from him or, or to get helped by him. And he says no to David. David feels slighted. David takes his men and they're going to go and attack mm. Nabal. And then Nabal's wife uh, stops David and... Anyway, there's an interaction that goes on there. Suffice it to say, there is actually an important progression to David's narrative, David's character between chapter 24, 25, and 26. Mm. So in chapter, chapter 24, David is unwilling to use force to gain his own ends, mm. especially over the Lord's anointed. In chapter 25, David is willing to use force to gain his own end. Chapter 26... David seeks an opportunity to use force against the Lord's anointed mm. to gain his own end. But what goes on in those three interactions is really important. Mm. And there's a progression in his character. Interesting. It's almost like the narrative is deliberately given to us. Yes. It's almost like there's thought behind this and revelation behind this. Yes. Believe nice. it or not. And you know what Nabal means? What does Nabal mean? Fool. Nabal. Naval. There you go. Sure. I didn't know that. Chapter 24, fool me once, strike one. <laughs> Chapter 26, fool me twice, strike three. Hey, actually, that's not too far off because in 1 Samuel 27, mm. uh, uh, I think it's verse 1 or verse 2, Samuel, uh, David says, now I know for sure that Saul is going to kill me. But in chapter 26, Saul just said, I'm not going to kill you. Mm. What gives? Well, in chapter 24, Saul said, I see God's favor on you. Go in peace. Mm. But he still pursued him. Then in 26, he says, I see God's favor on you. Go in peace. I'm not going to pursue you. Why would David believe him? Mm. He's already seen it once. Saul recognized him once and said, go in peace. But he still pursued him. 26, he recognizes him, says, go in peace. David in 27 says, I don't believe it. I'm going to die. So I'm going to run. So the narrative fits together 24 25 26 27 and there's a beautiful line in there somewhere where and i'm gonna butcher this get ready for this ready saul in talking to david he Mm -hmm. has this line maybe you can help you he says what kind of man is this that finding his enemy spares his life yes that's right something like that yes yes so and, and you know it's it's great because it's like that's the character of God, right? Mm. Who finds his enemy and spares him. There you go, thing. David, man of God, good guy. Not always. No, but um, yes, 
Anyway. Anyway, that's something I was looking at last week. I'm at this point where I'm going, I've finished it, I've submitted it, but I may look at it again maybe two days before the actual due date just to, you know, I've given it a few weeks. Maybe I've got some fresh insights coming in. Mm. I can bolster it up a bit. Mm. Mostly, like, not even for the marks. It's actually for myself because I want to be able to use these essays somehow after mm. college. Mm. I want to be able to do something with them. Yes. Not publish or anything, but if I can use it for sermon prep, or I could even use it for training material. Yeah. If I can bolster the document now, it makes it more useful yeah. later. Anyway. That's a good aim. And I think, like, you know, even if you're not in college, you know, I mm. think maybe uh, something I would have said my to my former self, or maybe even my current self needs to do this <laughs> as well, is that whenever you're doing, like, a sermon series at church, or whenever you're doing, like, a Bible study series, um, maybe you set yourself the goal of, at the end of it, I want something tangible that I, that I can um, use in the future. Mm. That if I need to come back and like look at something on this, I've got like a one pager, or I've got something that kind of summarizes what I've learned about, mm. thought about. You know, that's yes, it. yeah, it's helpful. I'll just say one more thing about the David progression thing, and then we should get to our topic for today, which is part of the significance of you seeing David's increasing willingness to use force is I think that the, the the narrative of 1 Samuel is not trying to paint David in sort of a whitewashed way. Mm-hmm. As in, he is not a perfect individual, but he is blameless in terms of his... Uh, he doesn't attack the throne of Israel. He doesn't use his own force mm. ultimately to, to, to gain kingship, which is part of how I think 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is working. It's actually trying to give us, um, it's making a case for the legitimacy of David as God's anointed king. Mm. Um, and so the narrative is leading us to see David is a sinful man, and yet he is the chosen man of God. Mm. Um, that line, you know, uh, a man after God's own heart, I think there's, I've been reading a few things that, and, and I think compellingly make the case that a man after God's own heart is not actually saying something about David's character. It's actually saying something about God's choice, that he is the one who God's heart was after. Mm. God's heart is after David. Um, Whereas I think it's typically used as a man after God's own heart is, you know, David is a man who loved God and it's telling us about his character. I think rather it's the other way. It's man after God's own heart is David is God's chosen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you got mm. your pondering yeah no i remember talking about this in class and um i think it was it was very it was quite inconclusive what we came to because you know how is david presented is he presented as someone who's a, a king after god's own heart um not always obviously because he sins but in the, you know looking back on david he can be called the great the greatest king in israel or one of the greatest kings in israel the great king david and so I think there's something there where the David is um, does seek after God. Though interestingly, sorry, I cut you off. No, no, no. Yeah. I was just gonna say interestingly, I think two kings cause Hezekiah the most righteous king that mm. Israel ever had. Mm. I might be misremembering that, but I'm pretty sure in the chapter in Hezekiah it says there was no more righteous king as came before him or after him. Yeah. So. David is is portrayed as God's chosen, but I don't think... Well, the, the thing I was saying is that I think it's less about 
how he deserved it and more about God's kindness towards him, even though he was an imperfect man mm. as well. Mm. Although maybe there, I, I, I'm not doubting that there is something about his moral character is different to Saul's. Yeah. Maybe, you know, if a weird theological project would be to, to kind of look at the Old Testament through the lens of everyone has their own superpower. <laughs> Solomon is the wisest. Yes. Hezekiah is the most righteous. Yes. David is just the best. Say he's solid. He's, <laughs> he's the just best. the best. Uh, Noah, boat. Noah is the Batman of the Old Testament <laughs> in that his greatness really comes down to he built some pretty cool things. He built some pretty cool things. And that's how he's made it through, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. What would... um? Oh, and you've got uh, Samson, super strength. Super strength. Yes. Superman um, sort of thing. What would Moses' superpower be? Like? Moses. So which superhero is like kind of... Law gives the law. <laughs> <laughs> the monitor from DC. Um, uh, who else? Uh, anyway, the Celestials from from Marvel. Mm, mm, yes. Anyway, or who's the one that parts water? Oh, water. Uh, you, uh, With, um, well, Aquaman. Oh, Aquaman. Moses is that? Aquaman. <laughs> Moses is Aquaman. I hear you talk to fish. <laughs> 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 anyway, All right, we should get on to our topic for we today. Have, we are really running out of time, yeah, and we've got right. a big topic to big talk about. Juicy steak of a topic. That's right. Now, um, Pip, can you remind us, where have we? Where were we last week, and what are we doing over the next few weeks? Yes, okay, so we're looking at the doctrines of grace, um, commonly referred to as the five points of Calvinism, that's mm-hmm. fair to say. Um, we kind of... We, so last week we kind of established that the five points of Calvinism um, are generally viewed as in kind of opposition or, or, or um, compiled in opposition to the five points of Arminianism after Jacob Arminius and his followers and their theology. His five, their points, often called the, the remonstrance, mm-hmm. um, which basically laid out a... A view of salvation, a view of God, a view of uh, God's lordship over salvation, uh, a view of fr- human free will, um, which has, uh, yeah, there was big debates over it back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we've been doing is like looking at these two different documents side by side and thinking about the five points of Calvinism. Um, we're not going with the traditional tulip so, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. We're going old tip. So, we're switching them around because <laughs> that is when the, the kind of Calvinist document, the, the canons of Dort, um, go for the old tip approach. And interesting, I've, I found out that they actually kind of combine points three and four. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. They combine points. So maybe we'll think about that when we get to next week. Yeah. But today, I'll tip, we're thinking L, we're thinking limited atonement. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this is one of the tricky ones, right? Well, they're all kind of tricky, but this is this is one where it's like limited atonement. Mm. Is this, are we arguing for limited atonement? Limited? <laughs> Can atone? Uh, that sounds bad. That sounds like a lesser atonement. Mm. You know, limited. What the? What is going on? So, James, do you want to like launch us into this? Yeah, discussion? let's do it. All right. So, why don't we start with what is the doctrine actually saying, and let's read a section of the Canons of Dort where this belief or this this saying is 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 put forward. Sounds good. So, in short, the doctrine of limited 
Atonement states that Jesus died to definitively purchase God's chosen people. Let me say that again. Jesus died to definitively purchase God's chosen people. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, then, limited atonement isn't the most helpful term. Maybe a better term would be definite atonement or complete victorious atonement. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, draw your attention to Article 8 of the second main point of doctrine. Can you, um, it's a bit long, but can you start from, maybe your translate, does it have a, it was God's will that? Not at the start. Um, it was the, no, let's go It was there. the will of God. Yeah, that's Okay, it. it says this. It was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectually redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and language, all those, and those only, who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father, that he should confer upon them faith, which together with all the other saving gifts of the Holy Spirit he purchased for them by his death, should purge them from all sin, both original and actual, whether committed before or after believing, and having faithfully preserved them even to the end, should at last bring them free from every spot and blemish to the enjoyment of glory in his own presence forever. Okay, so that's quite a lot there. Let me say the definition I gave again. Yeah. Limited atonement states that Jesus' death on the cross was to definitively purchase or definitively redeem God's chosen people. Okay, so when we're thinking limited, yes. the limit is that last bit on God's chosen people. That's right. Whereas the remonstrance or the Arminian document would mm-hmm. say that there's no like when when jesus died there was no kind of god didn't have in his mind this this death is for these people yes it's it could be for anyone yes we'll see, let's see what happens yes yeah well why don't we um if you go to the rejections uh, yeah. the first article of the rejections states what the um what the remonstrants believe so could you read yeah. the the document here yeah and sorry like the way that i just said it mm. is probably not a fair representation of what an army would actually you know what though just as far as like reductionism goes yeah that's pretty spot on okay what you just said there. it's a little reductive but yeah yeah so take, take that with a grain of salt so here, here, here's how it would be put yeah it says this uh, that god the father has ordained his son to the death of the cross without a certain and definite decree to save any so that the necessity profitableness and worth of what christ merited by his death might have might have existed and might remain in all its parts complete, perfect, and intact, even if the merited redemption had never, in fact, been applied to any person. Mm. So it's like, if Christ died and achieved no final salvation for anyone because no one actually chose to put their faith in Jesus, it still would have been a good, complete thing that happened. That's right. That's right. Mm. So... Uh, like that's that's why it's called limited on the, the way the canons of Dort put it. It's saying that Jesus's death was definitively redeeming, definitively purchasing, definitively atoning for God's elect, mm. God's chosen people. Mm. That's the sense in which it's limited. Yeah. Whereas the opposite view says, no, Jesus's death redeems, atones for, pays for anyone everyone 
Now, that I just used two words there that actually have a different view, but I'm just going to use them interchangeably mm, for now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyone, everyone, only if they come to Jesus. Yeah. That's sort of, it's sort of like a blank check that's written to anyone who wants to get on board. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Whereas the canons of Vilt are saying it's for God's elect yeah. that the death of Jesus has definitively redeemed people. Is, is it worth saying that, like, uh, maybe a common misconception about the opposite of limited atonement is, like, um, total atonement that's, like, realized. So, like, that would be universalism. Mm. So some people believe that everyone will be saved in the end, that everyone's going to heaven mm-hmm. um, because Jesus' death, um, God so loved the world that he gave his only son and everyone's going to go to heaven. Mm. Um God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to have eternal life. Now, I've just twisted two different Bible verses to argue for universalism. <laughs> um, but that's kind of, you know, uh, but that is, that is not what the Arminians believed. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, they did not. They, they, did not they believe believed that, that um, it was not, there was no certain and definite decree mm. from God to save any. Yes. Yep. So just uh, l- let me clarify one other misunderstanding. Then I'll just say a few things about yeah, it. Yeah. Then we should get to the Bible and see what the Bible sure, actually sure, says sure. about some of these things. Can you go back to the second, like this this um, this point, but go up to article, where is it? Uh, article, f- article 3, sorry. Can okay. you read Article 3, please? Yeah, it says this. The death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sin and is of infinite worth and value, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. Mm. Now, this is a really important thing to say here. The canons of Dort are not saying that Jesus' death is limited in its value. You know, Article 3 says it is the it is of infinite worth and value, mm. right? The, 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 the worth of his death, the ability of his death, the, the magnitude of his death, right, the, is, is of infinite value, it is totally able yeah. to to atone for the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. Yeah. So it's not it's not like you know Jesus' death. There's like a a jar of like atonement liquid. Yes. And every time someone puts their faith in Jesus, a, that liquid goes down a little bit. Yes. And there's just the right amount for every believer. I like that yeah. image. Yeah. <laughs> it's really helpful. So it's not like that. It is it is in set like okay, it is like a. It's like a, it's a blank check in the sense that it's able to, um, able it's it's sufficient for all who believe mm. in the end. Yes, however many that is. Yes, yeah. So the question isn't in the end about the sufficiency of Jesus's death. Mm. It's about the efficiency of Jesus's death. Okay. The canons the of Dort, the effect that the it effect. Has on... That's right. The, the the canons of Dort here by talking about this definite atonement as saying who did Jesus actually save in his death? Mm. Was it anyone in particular or was it no one in particular? Mm. That's really the question that's in view here. Now, uh, I'll just say a few things and then we should open up to the Bible. Mm. And um, Pip, would you be able to just, just so we're ready to read it when we get there, could you read, uh, open up John chapter 10, please? Sure. John chapter 10. So let me just say a few things about this. Um, the point being made is that Jesus, is, Jesus didn't merely die to make salvation possible. 
he actually saved his people. That when you look at the cross as a Christian, or even as a non-Christian, you don't look at that and say, wow, uh, Jesus is a potential savior if you get on board with him. No, actually, it's he is the savior. Mm. He actually saved people. Mm. Um, when we look at the testimony of the Bible, the point I think that's made rightly by uh, and summarized here is that Jesus was given for the whole world in some sense. Like he's a gift to the whole world. Um, but that salvation is in particular for his chosen people. If you don't believe that, if you don't believe that, then you have to ask the question, okay, well, don't we believe that God elects people, right? Or shall we say the Father elects people? Let's, let's put it that way. And the Holy Spirit is going to affect salvation in and grow God's elect. So does that mean the Father and the Holy Spirit agree on, on who they're focusing on? Mm. But Jesus in his death doesn't focus mm. <laughs> on the elect. Mm. Father elects. Spirit will save and grow the elect, but Jesus, no, 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 that's for, for no, not the elect in particular. You, you've broken apart the Trinity in terms of their focus, right? Father, mm-hmm. Son, Holy Spirit, though, I would say, uh, do every, well, not just me, but they do things in unity, mm-hmm. right? Um, but not only that, you then have to ask this question then, is would Jesus's death have just been a hypothetical salvation? Or did it actually save people? Mm. And who did Jesus think he was laying down his life specifically for mm-hmm. as well? Mm-hmm. Now, before we come to John 10, do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, so it's a we- So let me just clarify, right? So as Jesus goes to the cross, is there any sense in which he knows every single person that's going to believe? Um, like, was it was it possible that he was like, you know, oh, this person two thousand years time they're going to believe in me, you know, that's I'm dying for them. That would probably be to be too specific on the mechanics. Mm. <laughs> What's because going on there? I, I, one, yeah, one of the complexities, I guess, and this is kind of a side point, but like Jesus' limited knowledge, and that there is that there are things that the son doesn't know, right? Um. And that's a whole other. Mm. Top, that's a whole other podcast. Yes. You know, episode. <laughs> the knowledge. Yeah. The Jesus. Knowledge Jesus. Jesus. Knowledge. Yes. Um, yeah. And so I wonder, like, is it helpful to talk about the Trinity and connected here, or is it is it enough just to say the Father knows who He is saving? I think that's one part of the answer is to say. Jesus's sovereignty, Jesus's atonement, Jesus's death was not dependent on him having Pip Witheridge in his mind. Mm, mm, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And yet, in the foreknowledge of God and His sovereign purposes, you know, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they, they, you know, Ephesians one, three to four says, you know, before the foundation of the world, He'd already chosen a people in mm. His Son to be holy and blameless in His sight. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is this is why, on one level, last week us starting with unconditional election makes so much sense because mm. you start on one level. It's starting with the fact that God knows His people. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know, salvation has been accomplished in Jesus, but it hasn't been applied to all of the people yet, and yet God knows who the 
who are his. Yeah. He knows who are his. Yeah. Even before salvation has been applied to them yet. Yeah. Um, let's look at some Bible. Yep. Pip, can you read John chapter 10, verses 14 to 16? Okay, it says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Mm, thank you. So context here is Jesus is using the shepherd imagery, which is probably uh, particularly talking about Israel, right? Uh, he knows who are his in Israel. Mm. Uh, but he also talks about sheep that are not of this fold, but in another fold. He needs to go get them also. Mm. Now, you could refer to that as, you know, uh, excuse me, uh, Jews who aren't in Israel itself, but Jews scattered around mm. in the dispersion could also mean Gentiles. Here's the point, though. Jesus knows who his sheep are. In verse 15, he lays down his life for the sheep. Mm. He, in view, in particular, is saying, I am dying for those who I know are mine. Mm. Can we come to Ephesians chapter 5? Yeah. Ephesians chapter 5. Can you read verses 25 to 27? Okay, it says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. A lot of people look at Ephesians 5, last part, thinking about, husbands and wives, and that's true. But there's deep Christology that's going on Mm. in these passages. And in this passage, it very specifically says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. Mm. And in particular, it was to see something affected in the church, right? 26, to make her holy, cleansing her. Verse 27, present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Mm. Jesus's death isn't just to make this possible, it's to bring this about. It's to make it happen. Mm. It's a it's it's a on one level then if you deny that Jesus's death definitively did this, you 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 open up the possibility that Jesus is wasting some of his blood. Mm. Jesus has not achieved the sovereign purposes of God uh, in in his death. Um I guess like I'm just trying to play, you know, think devil's advocate for the Armenian position. It's like you could read it as Christ loved the church, whoever they might be, Mm. and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, whoever she might be in the future. Like whoever would come and put their faith in Jesus, that's who he was seeking to sanctify by his death. But Mm. that doesn't happen until the kind of faith connection point is made. Mm. And faith is from someone's own free will to choose to trust Jesus or not. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That's a possible, way, like just, just these verses, you know, bringing, bringing like an Arminian mindset to it mm. might read it. Well, that's a good point. So maybe now we should say, why would, we, why, would it, why would anyone want to deny this? Why would an Arminian have an issue with this doctrine of limited atonement? Um, and I think one level existentially is you 
at least in our modern times, we, we really want to say to anyone, Jesus died for you. Mm. Mm. Um, I mean, do, do you resonate yeah, with that? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I've heard youth, uh, uh, or, you know, evangelistic talks where mm. it's, you know, Jesus died for you. Mm. How will you respond? Yes. So, it's presented as Jesus died for you, whether or not you are actually his, whether or not you are a, a sheep and not a goat or a believer and not a non-believer, Jesus died for you. <coughs> um, yes. But, and, and sorry, yes, I, I, I resonate with that. And I, I think there's a very strong rhetorical force in being able to say to anyone, Jesus mm. died for you. Mm. I guess if we're trying to be precise biblically, I want to say two things here. One is that is true. Mm. Jesus died for the world, and Jesus' death has impacts for the whole world. For example, Jesus' death disarms the rulers and authorities so that in the world right now there is definitively, um, you know, a, a new a new ruler. <laughs> Jesus mm. is the Lord of the whole world now, whether you believe in him or not. Mm. But I think it's, it's also okay to say Jesus died for the sins of the world. Mm. I think so. But it depends, like, and, and there is, um, what's the verse? Jesus died for the sins of the, not not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What's that verse? Uh, 1 John 2. 1 John 2, 2, maybe? Ours only. Um, yeah, that's a pretty, one. yeah, 1 John 2, 2. Um, and it says, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Mm. Um, and you could read that and be like, okay, so every single person in the world, but I think that's lazy kind of connecting the dots. It could be kind of lazy. Yeah. Lazy. I think it's worth just thinking through what, what could it mean? The whole world, sins of the whole world. And I think that the canons of Dort actually try to draw this out a bit and make it explicit as they speak of all nations, every tongue, every tribe, um, Jesus died not for one particular ethnic group, mm. but for the sins of the whole world, people all over the world, not necessarily every single person in the world. Mm. So I think like you come, you come across verses where, um, you know, a, a view of limited atonement might be challenged mm. and you think, okay, and it's not like you're trying to square, you're not trying to force limited atonement into the text, but you're trying to do the text justice. You're trying to let... Scripture interpret scripture interpret scripture. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, I, that's really helpful, Pip. And in addition to that, I guess the other thing I'd want to say about wanting to say Jesus died for you is that is a modern phrase that we want to use. I mean, if you look at the New Testament, that sort of line and phrase is never thrown out there in the gospel preaching we see in the New Testament. The fact of Jesus's death, the fact of Jesus's resurrection which then has an impact on you, is brought up. It's not, Jesus died for you, what are you going to do for him? It's actually, no, Jesus, the Lord and Messiah who was crucified, is risen. He is going to come back to judge. Today, you are called on to repent and believe in him. Mm-hmm. You know, What are you going to do in response to the fact that Jesus is judge, he is Lord, he is risen, right? Mm. In other words, what I guess I'm trying to say is, some are we letting... Just in this hypothetical example, are you letting this phrase that you want to keep using determine your theology? Mm. Or are you mm. going to let scripture and how 
Scripture talks about things determine your theology mm. and your evangelism as well. I mean, I have no issues with saying to someone, Jesus died for the world, right? And mm. that includes you. Yeah. What are you going to do about that, right? Yeah. I have no issues with that. I have no issues with saying Jesus loves you, mm. right? Mm. But that shouldn't be the crux of your evangelistic message because it's also true that even though Jesus loves you, if you don't repent, you are going to suffer judgment. Yeah. So the love part there isn't, I don't think that is the most powerful, like it's not the trump card yeah, that it's, gets people. So it's, it's both a, a rescue mission yes. and a reality mission. Mm, yeah? Revealing the reality yeah. of what's coming. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. Um, I guess another thing that might be out there is, and I've heard this from two Armenian friends of mine when I was at uni, it's, it's preserving the love of God for all people that actually God gives us a real, like, this is why you'd want to deny limited atonement is to say, well, God still gives us a real choice. Um, and if it is definite atonement, then where's the choice in that? Mm, like, mm. before the foundation of the world, if you just weren't one of those that God chose, mm. from the beginning, you you are you're a goner. Mm. You had no chance. That doesn't that doesn't appro- that doesn't uphold God's love. Yeah. That doesn't uphold our freedom. That, and so I get that. I resonate with that. Mm. You, you feel that? I bit? resonate with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I'm sympathetic to, the, to that to the point that I. I I'm more than sympathetic. I want to almost uphold. I want to uphold that we have a real choice to make. Mm. But what do we mean by real choice? So real choice as in we have um, power to affect things that God has no power over. No. I'm speaking more on a human level. You know, people often, there's there's lots of, you know, we've talked about this before, there's lots of warning passages in the New Testament about keeping the faith and uh, confirming your calling and election and things like that. It's like, well, doesn't God already know? Why do we need to confirm? Well, we don't operate with God's view of the universe. You know, we don't, we're not omnipotent. We have a limited, uh, we see in part, you know, we're human. Um, and so we need warnings and we need the language of, Decisions, and we need the language of um, choosing to trust in Jesus and putting our trust in Jesus. We need that as humans, mm-hmm. um, because we operate. We must operate from a human perspective, because we are human. We yeah. can't operate from a God perspective because we're not God. Mm. And so, when the Bible reveals to us those those that language, um, we yeah, we should go with it. Now, does the Bible ever say? choose to follow jesus well does there are places that does use the language of choose choose life yes you know um and you do have real choice yeah yes i think the other aspect to say there is that it implies still that it implies two things that sort of retort one is that we aren't real sinners and the other one is it implies that god is obligated Mm. to to save everyone um and if that's the approach we're taking, we're fundamentally not approaching it under the scheme of that of reality yeah. and scripture. Yeah. Here's a question. So we've been talking about um, limited atonement, and the so the Armenian view is like there's no definite decree who is going like who is included in God's people. 
um, before, like, before people put their face operate and put their face. Oh, on. No, there is, but it's that's a condition of it, as in the 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 way they would operate hypothetically okay. becomes the condition of their election. So they would still affirm election. Is that right? Yeah. So we go back to um, the canons of Dort. Yeah. And what the first one we read, right, was what was that? Fourteen was it? Or are you talking about the first error? Oh uh, yes, the rejection. Yes, um, uh, I think it was um, that God the Father has ordained His Son to the death of the cross without a certain and definite decree to save any. Oh, sorry, you're talking about um, yes, the second head. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's right. So without a certain and definite decree to save any. Yes. That's talking about the death, that the death itself doesn't have a certain decree to save any. Okay. But God's election, which is the first point. Right, right. It, he does elect, but it's conditional on a particular right. foreknowledge. So I was going to ask, like, you know, opening up Ephesians, you know, predestined mm. in him. Arminians would still affirm predestination. Yeah. So it's okay. wrong. It's, it's, it's wrong to say they don't affirm predestination. Yeah. The question is on what basis? Right. And also how far, what does that predestination, how far does that go down? Because as we'll see next week or the week after, the question of resistible grace mm. then comes in as well. Yeah. Okay. So for those listening and wondering, yes. why should I care? Why does this matter? Why should I care about limited atonement? What mm-hmm. does it matter whether Jesus died for his people mm-hmm. or for, you know, blank check everyone and he doesn't know who are his sort of thing? Yeah. What does it, what does it matter? Let me throw out three things. Okay. First one is that it should lead us to worship. To actually say, you know what, whatever God says he's going to do, he's going to do. And that as Jesus died on the cross, he secured for sure atonement for God's elect. Mm. In other words, when God, in, in the Arminian framework, God elects, but you don't really know if the death is really going to save people. Mm. It's a free offer that people can get on board with. So posturally then, that leads to nervousness mm. with people. You're going, yeah, maybe you're one of God's elect, but actually I need to try to convince you to get on board with this for sure. Uh, and if you're not on board with this, you're not going to. Mm. Like Jesus' death might might not count for you. Yeah. But the opposite here is actually worship to go, no, actually, I freely, uh, generously, sincerely, and joyfully love and serve and evangelize and live my Christian life with with full confidence that not one drop of Jesus's blood has been wasted. Mm. I guess the second thing there... Oh, so do you want to comment on that or should I say all three first? I was just going to say, like, it reminds me of that song, you know, that song, It is finished, it is finished, he has done it. It reminds me of that that word, yeah. Well, speaking of... Oh, no, you go, you go. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it is finished, he has done it, let your weary heart rejoice, our redemption is accomplished. Yes. Raise a shout with ragged voice. Yes, yes. There's strong assurance there, isn't there? Mm. Uh, A second thing, then, is um, uh, posturally, it gives you great comfort when you sin let me tell you what i mean by that um uh, speaking of songs think about before the throne of god above Mm. you know my name was graven on his hands my name was written on his heart Mm. i know that while in heaven he stands 
no tongue can bid me thence depart. Mm. Now, that's a song. It's not scripture. But pastorally, think about this for a second. When you sin and you feel worthless or you feel guilty or you feel shameful or you feel down and out, you can be led to, you can be deceived into thinking, yeah, God, you made a mistake with me. Or I know Jesus died for me, but surely he didn't die for, for this or mm. for that sin or for this guilt or, or this thing that I've done wrong or this way I've, I've sinned against another person. Limited atonement, really, again, definite atonement, this, this, what it does is it posturally lets you go, you know what, God knew exactly what he was getting. Mm. when Jesus died for me. Mm. That actually, again, it leads to worship. So to almost go, really, Jesus? Mm. You, you knew that I was going to do this, and yet your death still is for me? Mm. That was in view? That, that was, that's what's already mm. been paid for? Why? Yeah. Why would you do that? Yeah sheer grace yeah again this upholds grace doesn't it so posturally i think it gives great comfort and assurance and healing to guilt and shame to know that jesus's death isn't some uh you know something out there that you need to go grasp hold of no no no. he came and sought us he his death was already for that Mm. his death was already for you he knew what he was getting mm. and he still died for you. Yeah. That sort of That's picture. great comfort for sinners. Huge comfort, comfort, isn't it? Yeah. Huge comfort. I guess a third thing is it's it's actually just to say that there is justice in God. So you think about this for a second, right? If, let's say, for example, if Jesus' death really does pay for everyone without exception, right? Mm. Well, then how can they go to hell one day? Because if they, if, if, if the person who doesn't repent experiences God's judgment, couldn't they go, God, you're unjust. You're, you're punishing me for sins. But didn't Jesus already pay for it on the cross? Mm. So it's one of the, one of the punishments is in vain. Yeah. So one of the, yeah. So that God is punishing the same sins twice. Yeah. Or the yeah. same sinner twice. Okay. Right. But no, actually, God's justice is preserved because his death, Jesus' death on the cross definitively atones for, pays for the sins of the elect, Mm. and they will never experience judgment again. Mm. But for the non-elect, they will experience that judgment in the final judgment. And that's just because Jesus' death didn't actually count for them. Mm. Even though Jesus' death is of infinite worth and value, it is is sufficient for everyone in the world, it is not efficient Mm. for for, Mm. for everyone. Yes, And so... You should care about this if you want to uphold uh, the justice of God mm. as well. So worship, pastoral, uh, comfort, and justice. Nice, I say. Nice. Uh, any that's a, I think that's the that's a good summary of like why we should care about this. And so, yeah. Look, I mean, you know, I think there are plenty of people out there, and I am one of them from time to time who like when we're talking about theological formulas, kind of cringe a bit and was like why are we you know tulip and the five points of calvinism what what why do we need to talk about this stuff can't we just read the bible and move on with it um so i think this, this shows that like in in history in the history of uh christians trying to read god's word faithfully and trying to um know god better and know about salvation know jesus better there have been some serious disagreements and some serious um points of 
doctrinal um, separation. So it is important that we wrestle with this because we want to know God. We want to know Jesus better. We want to know his grace, his salvation better. We want to understand it to the extent that we can and so that we can rejoice in it, mm. so that we can rejoice in him. Um, and I think that this you know, limited atonement sounds like a, a weird kind of technical phrase, but I think that this has been helpful in just fleshing out why it's, why it's important and how we can rejoice in it more. Mm. So thank you for that. That's this right. This has been a good time. I've got a quote I'd love for you to read in a second. Sure. But can I say there are... There are legitimate, uh, one of the other reasons why people might reject limits of determinism is because there seem to be passages that stand against it. Mm. Worth saying, as with all things in the Bible, boys, we can't cover everything. Mm. Um, but it's also worth saying that some of the future, like the things we'll look at in the next few weeks, may also speak to some yep. of this stuff. So, um, for example, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse, I think it's verse 1, seems to be a pretty strong text against limited determinism. We will come back to that in a few weeks because one of the other doctrines of grace, I think, speaks to this okay. as well. Cool. Um, here's a quote from Charles Spurgeon, okay. the man. Would you be willing to read this, Pip? Sure. Here's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. The Arminians say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer, no. They are obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that uh, any man may be saved if, and then follow certain conditions of salvation. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why you? You say that Christ did not die so as infallibly to secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon when you say we limit Christ's death. We say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved you are welcome to your atonement you may keep it we will never renounce ours for the sake of it nice <laughs> it's a bit of a banger quote it's a it? banger quote charles Spurgeon knew how to turn a phrase that's right that's good um i think that's it for us for today in terms of that topic now unfortunately we're, we're sort of out of time you need to get to a meeting yeah you? i need to go all right well why don't we leave it there listeners Please send us, you know, any questions or comments at the Bible Boys with a Z at gmail.com. And uh, we will continue this series mm. next week. Mm. Uh, I don't know what else I was going to say. Well, you, well, you we'll be looking anything? at the T I of all tip. Yes. Or maybe just the T. Or maybe the T I. We'll work it out. We'll see. You know before. Well, no, I was going to say you know before we do, but that's not true. God knows. God knows. It's true. God knows. Amen. Amen. All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye.